to give God thanks, just to thank him for all that he'd made and given. And what natural man says is over my dead body, am I going to thank God? Over my dead body, am I going to honor him as God? And so Paul here isn't talking about this small segment of the human population, but the human race as a whole. This is how we all come into the world. This is the story of human history. That first and foremost, we have a worship problem. And how many of you out in the world have ever heard the phrase, a worship disorder? You don't, right? You hear of anxiety disorders, you hear of depression disorders, you hear of all kinds of anger and rage types of disorders, oppositional disorders. You have narcissistic personality disorder. But you never hear of worship disorders, that that's really at the depth of our problem. Is we're upside down into our worship. It's a worship problem, not a global warming problem. The problem arises from our hearts, not our bodies, from disordered affections before it's disordered biochemistry, from dysfunctional loyalties, not dysfunctional families. That those are the areas of life that are the real problem. Now, all those other things I just mentioned, those are real problems. As we'll see, though, it's just not what God thinks is your biggest problem, your greatest danger. They're not the primary or deepest problem. Despite many things being wrong with our upbringings, our physical bodies, our societies, the Bible keeps trying to point back to, but here's the biggest danger. Here's your biggest problem. It's defection from God in your heart. It's refusal to honor him with the whole of your being. It's not wanting to love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Like that's the biggest problem. That's the cancer, if you will. So if you imagine being a physician, an oncologist, and Someone is sitting before you in your examination room, and on the wall you have just all these x-rays and scans of their body that just show stage four lung cancer all over, and it's spread all over the body. And they're sitting there on the table in front of you, really upset about a hangnail. And they're just like, will you please solve this problem? I can't live with this. And what are you as a physician gonna say? Okay, I think we might be able to take care of the hangnail, but I don't think that's your biggest problem. Well, that's how most of us relate to God in the world often. Is, Lord, I've got a hangnail problem. He's like, no, you've got a cancer problem. Or heart failure compared to a sunburn. Like, we've got 99% blockage in our heart, and yet what we really want God to do is give us some cream for the sunburn. And he acknowledges, okay, the sunburn, that hurts, but that ain't going to kill you. The heart problem will kill you. And so we hear that and we go, wow, how ridiculous to focus on the hangnail, to focus on the sunburn and not the cancer and not the heart failure. Well, what's amazing is we actually do it all the time. And the human race does it as a way of life, focuses on hangnails and sunburns rather than heart failure and cancer. We seem to know something's wrong in our world, something's wrong with society, something we sense is wrong with everyone, 
and yet we're just so slow to grasp and accept the answer God gives. Every time there's a school shooting, every time there's somebody that does something awful and murderous in a public place, the same debate recycles. Was it his family? Was it something wrong with his body? Was it a mental illness? Was it actually there's just too many guns? Just grappling for answers in the dark, and all of it peripheral. When was the last time you heard on a newscast somebody say, you know what, this guy just had an evil heart. That his soul was not right within him. That he hated God and people. That he was under the power of the evil one. Why don't we like anyone being explained that way? Why is, why is that so unnerving? Well, because we know if we accept that answer about someone else, we have to accept it about ourselves. Then why do I think, feel, and act the way I do? If the reason they went into that school and did that is because something was wrong with his soul. He was consumed and possessed by evil desires. His heart was hardened and alienated from God, and God had given him over to a debased mind. Like, you start going that direction, and everybody in the room starts getting uncomfortable. Because if that's why he did that, then why am I so angry when I get cut off on the road? Why does everything that comes out of me come out of me? So natural man thinks the main problem exists outside him, and the answer exists inside him, when it's the absolute opposite. The real problem is inside, and the answer has to come from the outside. And that's why phrases like, just follow your heart, only exist in a world where you don't think the heart is the problem. Because if you think the heart is the problem, and that what rules your heart will rule your life, then we wouldn't say things like, just follow your heart. We would say things like, Solomon, keep your heart with all diligence because from it flows the springs of life. I mean, you see it, yeah, just back to schools. I mean, it's, here we are back to the debate of should kids be wearing masks in schools, yet nobody's wondering, should we be putting filters on the computers? Okay, we need to have social distancing from each other. Well, is anybody asking, what are actually the more dangerous things that shape the minds and hearts of youth? Isn't that more dangerous than COVID? So it shows there's that constant debate of what really is the problem. And so you'll see there that point A, our hearts are the problem. Jeremiah 17, 6, the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That describes the basic condition of an unregenerate heart of every human being that comes into the world who is apart from Christ, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. And part of how that sickness shows up is we don't even understand it. We don't even see it. We don't get it. That apart from the gracious revelation of God, we're not even capable of knowing ourselves. Because the very next verse is, I, the Lord, know the heart, and I render to each according to their deeds. 
So God's going to say, I'm the only one that really knows what's in you. Solomon is going to say this in 1 Kings 8.39, You alone know the hearts of the sons of men, O Lord. He's just going to say, you, you only. You're the only one, Lord, that actually sees what's in us. You're the only one that really knows us. A sinful heart, it's not a new problem. It's as old as the human race. Turn over to Genesis chapter 2. Where after creating Adam, he's going to command Adam in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Really clear. Really sobering. And actually pretty encouraging. Of all these trees, you can eat freely. Enjoy them. Have a great time. Be satisfied in them. Just here's this one. Can't eat from that one. Because in the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. But then you turn over into chapter 3, verse 1, where the serpent, or Satan taking this form, is going to speak to Eve. And he's going to ask the question, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Again, those are words right to the heart, right to the thinking, feeling, affectional, loyalty, worship place of their souls. Do you really trust God in what he said? Did he really say that? Of course, Eve replies, yeah, that's, that's what he said. Pretty much, don't eat it. We'll die. She's going to add, don't even touch it. So he just comes right out in verse 4, you will not surely die. Even though, what did God say? You will surely die. Well, this other voice says, well, you will not surely die. And right there is a war in the heart. Whose words, whose truth are you going to listen to? What, what are you going to believe? Who are you going to follow? Who are you going to fear? Who are you going to trust? Who are you going to delight in? It's like heart-level stuff. Here's what he has. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You know, God's withholding from you. He doesn't want what's best for you. He just doesn't want you to be more like him. But if you eat this, you can be like God without God. There's the promise. You can be like him without him. And then the entire human race rebelled and fell into a state of depravity in a single verse. Think about how much changed in one verse. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Again, heart level. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Even that phrase, who was with her, means Adam was there the whole time, hearing the whole conversation, who had sort of the highest rank on sight, to do what he needed to do with the serpent. Instead, he listens, he hears, she eats, and then he takes, he eats. 
And in that moment, their condition changed from sinless to sinful. Their relationship to God immediately changed from friend to enemy, from united to him to alienated from him. And they're going to sense that change immediately. Remember Adam and Eve? They're going to immediately realize, okay, they're naked and ashamed. This very new experience of their condition in that moment. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked. Sin, guilt, shame over sin, all of that enters into human history. And so there, in God's word, he reveals to us, here is the original problem. And it was a heart problem. Here's the original trouble, and it was a relation to God, worship trouble, lack of trust trouble, rebellion from the heart out through action. But we also see here in Genesis 3 that it's also the evasive problem. If we keep reading, the, the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So their eyes were open and they knew they were naked. Something was wrong. They were ashamed. What could they have done right then? Right away, what could they have done? They could have cried out to the Lord. Even right then they knew, oh, son, oh we blew it. But they're not. What's their instinct? What are they going to do? And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths to cover up. Is going to be their instinctive response. And that, that works as long as you don't sense God nearby. That whatever we do to cover up our own sin and transgression seems to be working until God draws near. And not that he wasn't here the whole time, only that now he's going to make himself known. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. There's going to be their second thing, hide. Cover, then you hear God, you hide. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Which, as you know, is not a question that comes from ignorance. This is not God playing hide and seek and he doesn't know where Adam is. This is God drawing his creature out to respond. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And we don't even realize the things that we do to incriminate ourselves just in what we say. Because Adam, from his point of view, he's just explaining what he was feeling, what was going on. And of course, God knows. Well, who told you you were naked? That's not even something you should be aware of or ashamed of at this stage. Again, he's not asking questions he doesn't know the answer to. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And there he asks another question he knows the answer to. But again, his goal is, I want to draw out Adam. I want to hear this man own what he's done. To grieve it in his heart, to repent of it in his heart. So he just a very, very simple Yes, no question. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? There's only two options here, right? Yes or no. And instead he gets creative. Verse 12, well, the woman who you gave to be with me. Now, did God ask that? Who gave you the fruit? Did God ask? No, he just said, did you eat? 
And so you see this other instinctive response from the heart. It's blame. The woman whom he gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Now, is that true? Had the woman given him the fruit of the tree and he ate? Yeah, just not relevant. It's amazing how many true things we'll say in defense of ourselves that just aren't relevant. And he thinks probably he got off the hook because then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? Which is a really, again, straightforward question, right? What have you done? The woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So it's not just the original problem, it is the evasive problem where we will cover, we will hide, we will blame long before we ever say, you know what, I blew it. Why did I do it? Because I'm a sinner. Because I'm, why did I say it? Because I'm selfish. Why am I thinking, feeling, acting this way? Why is this coming out of me? Because it's in me. And there's no way to cover it, no way to hide it, no way to put it on somebody else. And yet to see from Genesis 3 so early, it's just the instinct is to do those things. Exodus 32, you may know the story of Moses going up to Sinai to receive the law, and while he's up there receiving law, the people of Israel on the base of the mountain violating it. And these 40 days are going to go by, which they're thinking, hey, that's a really long time. We don't know what's happened to this Moses. And so they're going to say to Aaron, hey, make gods for us to go before us. And they press him on it. And so Aaron's going to take all that gold they give him, make this calf, and then say, behold, your God who brought you out of Egypt. He's going to sign basically Yahweh to this image. Well, God's going to say to Moses, hey, your people down there at the base of the mountain are making a mess of this. Go down. And I'm going to destroy them, make a great nation of you. Moses pleads for them intercedes for them. Well, then Moses goes down and sees this massive disaster at the bottom, this idol that is there, the immorality, the partying that's happening. He's going to throw the tablets. And then in 32 verse 21, he's going to confront Aaron. Then Moses said to Aaron, who you'll know is going to be the high priest, what did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? What were they doing that you brought this great sin upon them? And Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself, that they're prone to evil. I mean, come on, Moses, you know what I'm dealing with down here. You've been traveling with these people, how prone to evil they are. For they said to me, make a God for us who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And I said to them, well, whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. I mean, isn't that great how that's told? And scary? I just, yeah, I don't know. They... We're doing this, and then I did a little bit of this, and they did that, and I threw it in there, and then out came this calf. Well, how much happened between the throwing it into the fire and the calf? Like, was there a little bit of craftsmanship in there? Was there actually a lot of work that had to be done? 
to make a golden calf? And how many of us think that way about ourselves? Why did I do that? Why did that come out of me? Why did I say it? Why, well, I don't know. There's a little bit of this from my family, a little bit of that from my body, a little bit of this from the circumstances. All that got thrown in, out came this calf. And what Scripture is wanting to do, what God is wanting us to do, is slow down a little bit. You go, wait a minute, maybe don't focus so much on all the gold that got thrown in, or just the result, but all the craftsmanship you put into the middle that produced it. And that's part of why it's an evasive problem, because we're evasive. And it's hard to slow down and go, wait a minute, why did that come out of me? The circumstances were just, they just exposed me. <laughs> they didn't cause me. My family upbringing, those were contributing sort of factors, but those don't determine what I do. It's also the universal problem. I mean, we may think that COVID-19 is contagious, but right, nothing spreads like sin. It gets passed from every set of human parents to their children at conception. David says this in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Like he knows, I inherited this. This got handed down. Romans 5, 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So this cancer we're talking about started with Adam, got passed to every single people, everybody, and we all sinned, we all inherited it. So that by the time you get to Genesis 6-5, it says the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What a statement. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, that is a universal problem. Also, it's the deep problem. It's not something that's shallow and small, but deep and big. Psalm 38, verse 3, there is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. Like David understood Psalm 38, my iniquities are way over my head. They're too great for me, too deep for me. I can't fix this problem. If you can imagine deciding to take a little rafting trip on Niagara Falls, you know, and just... You went over Niagara Falls in your little boat and just plunged into the water. And just the weight of that waterfall coming down crashes your body right to the bottom. And because of the continual flow of water, it just pins you, which is what would happen, by the way, if you jumped into the bottom of Niagara Falls. You typically don't come out. It's just going to trap you there under that weight of water and pressure. And Scripture talks about our sin as something stronger than that. Something more impossible than that. Jeremiah 30, For thus says the Lord, Your hurt is incurable. Your wound is grievous. 
There is none to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. There's no human cure for this disease. There's nothing you could do, nothing you could resolve not to do. No seven steps you can apply to yourself to fix this deep, deep problem. It's also the invisible problem. We can't see the hearts of others, only the Lord can. We rely upon what we can see, what we can hear, what we can touch, which is why we so often overestimate the external, the physical, the visible over the heart. You know, Samuel did this. You'll remember Samuel is going to anoint Saul to be king first so that God can make a point. Here's the king after your own heart, people. And he's going to blow it. He's not going to relate to God through faith. He's not going to trust God's word. He is going to do his own thing. Even though he was strong in stature, he was head and shoulders above everybody, he was a warrior, he looked the part. But his heart wasn't the Lord's. And so God's going to send Samuel to Bethlehem to anoint a king who's going to be a man after his own heart. I want you to go, you're going to go find a guy whose heart is after my heart, who's going to love what I love and hate what I hate. And so he goes to Bethlehem to the house of Jesse and has Jesse bring all of his sons to a feast because he's going to choose the next king of Israel from among his sons. Remember, they don't even invite David. Why bother? He's just the youngest, keeping out there walking the sheep or watching the sheep. He's not impressive. He's ruddy. And then after the feast, he's going to have, or before the feast, he's going to have Jesse bring his sons before him. He starts with the oldest. So Eliab shows up. And here's what Samuel says, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. Why? Man, he looked the part. He was in shape. He was a fighter. He was handy. This, this is the one. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. And how many times do we have to hear that in our lifetime before we start believing it? To not see what man sees. To not overvalue what God doesn't put value on. And to value what he values. The character. The heart. Proverbs 25, 28, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. You could work out three times a day. You could bench press 300 pounds in your sleep. That doesn't mean you have any strength to fight sin. Because a man without self-control, who isn't able to say no to his body, who isn't able to follow Christ even when it hurts, like, is like a city broken down without walls. It's a weak, vulnerable person. And that's not how the world sees it, right? It's also the primary problem. Though our hearts aren't our only problem, our bodies cause us problems, our families cause us problems, society, government. There's so many 
other factors that can be problem causers. But we just have to realize, but that's not the primary problem. That's how Scripture talks about it. Because you can read the Psalms and you realize there's lots of problems that David is experiencing. Lots of forces that are fighting against him. He just is always aware of the fact, but that isn't my biggest problem. That outside forces, including family, biochemistry, those can all influence the heart, but they never determine the heart. We'll talk about that in future week. Just all the influences upon the heart that give context to the heart and expose the heart and raw material for the heart, but aren't the determination of the heart. Yeah, Matthew 15. Turn there if you would. Matthew 15. In verse 10, where it says, And Jesus called the crowd to him. And this is after the Pharisees and the religious leaders are going to confront Jesus about how his disciples break the tradition of the elders, verse 2, and they don't wash their hands when they eat. And so Jesus is going to respond, well, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions? You're going to talk about how you use your traditions to not honor your father and mother as the Lord has told you to honor your father and mother. He says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, verse 7, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So the Pharisees are like, hey, your disciples don't wash their hands properly. And Jesus is like, well, you don't love your mother. You don't love your father. You don't love God. You honor with lips, but your heart is on the other side of the world from where God is. And so then, I mean, if you don't think Jesus knew how to, like, stir up confrontation... And then he's going to decide, you know what, let's just call everybody around and have a little lesson. Verse 10, and Jesus called the crowd to him. So here's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, here's this moment of confrontation where he's going to say that. He's going to say, you know what, everybody gather around a minute. And he's going to make an example of this conversation. And he said to them, hear and understand. It's not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. That's the problem. He's basically going to say it's not outside stuff pushing in. It's the inside stuff pushing out. That's what defiles. And what's fascinating is to see then the response. And then the disciples came to him and said to him, do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? Like the disciples like, whoa, Jesus, settle down. Because that's the first human response usually to this kind of teaching. It's offense. It offends me when somebody says that the reason for me is me. That the reason I think, feel, say, relate, do all that I do is me. And I can't put it on something else. That I can't say it's the outside stuff that defiles me. And she's like, no, it's what's in you. And this, I was like, hey, that really offended the Pharisees. Well, what Jesus is not saying is, yeah, none of these other things are problems. There could be all kinds of problems around it. He's just saying that's not your primary problem. But it's also not the causal problem. Again, look at verse 15 of chapter 15. 
Well, then Peter said to him, well, explain the parable to us. That's the second common response to this kind of teaching is confusion. Now, did Jesus just tell a parable? When he said, it's not what comes into you that defiles you, it's what comes out of you that defiles you. Is that a parable? Or is that just a very plain statement of truth? But it's funny how we'll hear it and go, huh? That can't be. We're either offended or we're just confused. And so Peter's like, you got to explain that to us. It's just so complicated. It's not complicated. We just don't like it. And something in our heart goes, that can't be right. There's no way you're saying that everything that comes out of me is just me. There's gotta be, it's got to be more complicated than that. And Jesus said, are you still lacking in understanding? Because what did he say up in verse 10? Hear and understand. What's Peter's response? We don't understand. So Jesus says, are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand, here it is again, that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile and again, you see the priority. You see, even in Jesus' world, this is actually the causal problem. Even your thinking, like evil thoughts, come from you. Slanders, all the way up to murders and adulteries. The whole spectrum, he says, it's heart. It's probably 15 years ago. We were trying to load up the kids to go somewhere, and I got into the garage, and I hear screaming in conflict from inside our vehicle. Wasn't unusual, but I thought, what's this one about? And so went to the open door, and our son is really upset in tears at our daughter, and she's huddled over in the corner in her car seat. I'm like, what is going on? And he's just screaming, she took it, she took it, she took it. I'm like, all right, Faith, show me, what did you take? And she does this. And literally, this is what it looks like. And Gabe screams, there it is, there it is, she took it. I'm like, what, my trophy? And I'm like, what? Well, as I got more, as it turns out, they decided when they got in the car, they were going to race to see who could buckle into their car seat first. Gabe's like five. Faith is four. So they're racing, and, and Gabe won. So he created an imaginary trophy for himself. <laughs> and was shaking it in her face. So she grabbed it. And wouldn't give it back. And it was very upsetting to him. And so as a pastor and a dad, I thought, you know, this is an important moment. There's a lot here. And so I said, Gabe, we're late. Just make another one. Um, a bigger one if you want, you know. But walked away from, and even in all years after, I've never forgotten it. Because I thought, man, that, that's us. We create imaginary trophies. And then we go to war over them. 
wealth, status, image, reputation, personal achievement, pleasure, human praise, power. It all begins in the heart. They're imaginary trophies. And John Owen called the heart a factory for idol making. So that when Aaron says, I just threw in this gold and out came this calf, that's symbolic. That's analogous. That's what our heart does. All sorts of stuff gets poured in, and then we fashion idols there. It's the place where coveting arises. And even Paul said, I didn't know what it was to covet until the law said don't covet. And then I realized there's coveting all over the place in me. I covet everything. It's where bitterness arises that leads to murder, where anxiety arises that turns to false witness, where rage arises that drives drug addiction. It's just this volcanic cesspool of self-infatuated craving and self-serving desire. And God sees it. And that's why Jesus is going to say to the Pharisees and then to us, you want to fight about hand washing? Like that's really what you think the problem is? And you see why it captured his attention and why he's going to call a whole crowd around and go, all right, you need to hear and understand this. Here's your danger. And it's not dirty hands. Luke 19, and when he, Jesus, drew near and saw the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. In other words, if you only knew what your real problem was and what the real solution was, you, you wouldn't be killing him. But then the irony is, though they don't know, God knows. And it's in their ignorance in putting him to death that God is actually going to provide the atonement for sin. It's in their foolishness of misunderstanding the problem that they're going to put him to death. And by that, the Lord is actually going to provide the solution for the problem. And so the gospel, this section B, is our only hope. But it really is a glorious hope. Turn to Ephesians 2. Where in verse 1, Paul's going to say, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Meaning, in your heart, though your body was living, you were spiritually dead because your heart was dead because of trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Isn't it amazing that God says, No, everybody from birth, you're a dead person walking. You're walking, but dead. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. He doesn't mean just physical body. He means the sinful flesh. In the passion, in the desire, in the craving of the soul that gets worked out through the body and everything else carrying out the desires of the body and the mind were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There's the condition. There's the problem. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead and our transgressions made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He did all that before we even knew what the problem was. That's why so much of the Christian life is going back and sort of rearranging our understanding of what the problem was. And that's why the longer you walk with Christ, hopefully the more thankful we become. The more humbled we become. Because you start reading that and you realize, oh, I didn't save myself. I didn't pull myself out of this. I didn't figure it out. But it's God who is rich in mercy. And because of his great love with which he loved us, opened our eyes and our ears and helped us see the depth of the problem, which was sin and rebellion, and then helped us see, and here's the answer, Christ. By faith in him, being made alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, raised us with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus that the whole point will be for eternity forward that we would see and savor and give glory to God for his grace. That we'll all be able to look back and go, it was all grace. And what a marvelous grace. Because my wound was incurable. My sickness had no human answer. And yet God, because of mercy and because of his love, lavished grace, providing a savior and an atonement and a means of forgiveness to all who would turn and trust in him. The immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Verse 7. That only Christ could reach our original, evasive, universal, deep, invisible, primary, and causal problem. And all our attempts to reach it just made it worse. Only he could reach it, and he did. He absolutely did. That according to Ephesians 2, 9 there, our hearts and bodies are his workmanship, created and then recreated in Christ for good works. So praise God, he doesn't even ask you to fix yourself. He doesn't even ask us to fix the problem. He says, turn to me, and I'll fix it. Turn to me and I'll recreate you. Turn to me by faith. Trust in Jesus. I'll give you a new heart, new passions, new desires, and you'll be my workmanship. And then you'll die. Someday your body will be raised. You'll be glorified in heaven and you'll spend eternity glorying in my grace. Implications for that, I think, firstly, just humility. And part of that humility, I think, is honesty that our trouble is deep, it's personal, it belongs to us. There's no excuses, there's lots of mediating factors, but the reason for me is me. And I sin because I'm a sinner. But that's what compels us toward Christ. And that's what makes us celebrate and delight and praise God for grace. And so that should humble us, make us honest about the problem and yet thankful 
in the answer he's given. Dependence, I think, should be an implication upon the God of grace, upon grace, upon mercy, upon God helping, providing, growing us, changing us. I think thirdly, patience. Because if the problem really is what Scripture describes, then how fast is change? Yeah, it's going to be slow. Though you're born again in a moment, you come to faith in Christ, you're united to Christ, you're forgiven, it's done. But then the rest of your life is working out your salvation with fear and trembling. The rest of life is being conformed to the image of Christ. And if the problem is that deep, that big, that massive, that out of our reach at times, then how slow is change going to be? Both for us and for others. So it's not just patience toward ourselves, it's patience toward others. That's change is hard and slow. But praise God that he did not leave us to figure it out. He said, no, I'm going to send my son into the world. He's going to live, die, be raised so that they can be made new with a new heart, with new passions and loves. We're going to take the next 10 minutes again, 15 minutes even, and have some just discussion time. So like last week, if you want to just divide up into groups of four, five, six, there should be discussion questions this time there in your booklet or in your notes. And so just to pick, you may be able to get through one of those as a group. You may get through two as a group. A personal point of application for yourself this week. Um, and so here in about 12 to 13 minutes, I'll come back up and close us in prayer. But in the meantime, just divide into groups of four, five, six, and have this time of discussion.